Thank you for tuning in to the Drug Science Podcast. Just before we start, I have a very special announcement to make. On the 14th of July, Drug Science will be officially launching the Medical Psychedelics Working Group. This group will be comprised of drug science experts, academics, policy specialists and industry partners. To celebrate this launch, we'll be hosting a free online event open to the public. We'll be exploring how medical psychedelics could and should be integrated into Western psychiatry. To find out more and secure your tickets for this event, please click the link in the show notes below. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. My guest today is Crispin Blunt, who is a pioneering MP. Once the Minister for Prisons, which opened his eyes to the problem of drugs there. And since then, he's set up the Conservative Policy Reform Group on Drugs. And we're going to have a very detailed discussion about how we can move drug policy forward in this country. Welcome, Crispin Blunt. Well, delighted to be with you, David. Thank you very much for having me on the programme. Now, as you say, I'm a slightly unusual figure in this uh, debate. I was the first Conservative to become a co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Drug Policy Reform in Parliament. Myself and a lovely moderate Labour MP called Jeff Smith, we replaced Caroline Lucas and Paul Flynn. And for whatever the great merits of Paul and Caroline, they're not really in the mainstream of the political debate in Parliament. And I come to this having a very conventional background as a soldier for 12 years myself. My father was a professional soldier until he retired. So were both my grandfathers. So a very conventional military family with all the attitudes you would anticipate and the intolerance of illegal drug use, huge tolerance of legal drug use, of course, with um, (laughs) uh, military capacity for alcohol consumption, Mm. rivaled that of any by journalists. And I left the army to go into politics when I was 30 and I stood for parliament in 1992 unsuccessfully, then spent some time as Malcolm Rifkin's special advisor when he was the defence secretary and foreign secretary, then was elected in 1997 for the constituency of Reigate. I was one of only two seats that uh, the Conservatives took off the incumbent on the 1st of May 1997, which wasn't a great night for the Conservative Party. A slight cheat in my case, because it was the uh, incumbent Conservative who had been deselected by the local Conservatives, and then he had stood for the referendum party. But uh, a small cheer uh, went up on otherwise a fairly uh, grim night for the Conservatives as we had the Blair uh, landslide. I then spent 13 years in the opposition, with a variety of roles. And then when 2010 came and we formed the coalition government, I became the prisons minister. And my view on drugs policy is very heavily conditioned by what I saw in those two and a half years as uh, prisons and probation minister and the catastrophic effect of our drugs policy uh, on the criminal justice system. And the more you look around the world, you see just what a desperate disaster the war on drugs has inflicted on societies all over the world. To some extent, we're quite lucky in the UK. The consequences aren't nearly as grim as they are in places like Mexico, where 30,000 people were killed last year, not of drugs, 
They were killed in the battles between the, uh, the drugs cartels fighting for ownership of the supply chain into the United States. So your eyes were opened. I mean, and I remember you being quite vociferous about prisons when you were the, uh, the prisons minister. And did you manage to sort of get the rest of the government to listen? Well, I was very fortunate because I was working for Ken Clark, who was a great Secretary of State. He was the Justice Secretary. And I have a feeling that there was a misappreciation of me by uh, the Prime Minister. I thought, well, we'll stick this soldier in to mark Ken Clark, so prisons is left in sound <laughs> conventional hands. And I was even more screamingly liberal um, in terms of rehabilitation policy and trying to be creative about rehabilitation of offenders, um, restorative justice, uh, getting prisoners to work. And when you don't have any money, and we didn't have any money in 2010, you have to think about what you're going to do. And, and we uh, were faced with a rising tide of people coming into the prison system. And of course, a very, very large proportion of them uh, were linked in one way or another to drug misuse. Yeah, that's right. I think I've seen data suggesting that the doubling of the prison populations that occurred in the last 40 years has almost all been driven by drug offences. Exactly what the proportion is, I don't know, but that wouldn't surprise me. But if we think it's bad in the United Kingdom, uh, just look at the United States, where when I was prisoner, there were two million people in prison. And the product of the war on drugs and three strikes and you're out meant you had a situation where one in 11 of adult black American males were either in prison or under probation supervision. I was just truly terrifying numbers where part of society that's been at the margins economically have been driven uh, into this highly lucrative business because they had nowhere else to go. So that's when you began to get interested in the idea of reforming drug policy, was it? Yes. And so when I was the prisons minister, I asked if we could have a private conversation amongst my ministerial colleagues about just how much our policy was actually costing us. Was there a way to do this uh, more intelligently? Could we, have a, could we sit down and have, a, in private, a proper rethink about the drug strategy? And I was told very firmly by uh, one of my ministerial colleagues that we couldn't even possibly have that conversation because it would leak and then it would show the government's strength of purpose on its very simple message that drugs are bad. They are banned, um, would then be undermined. And so we couldn't even think privately. We just had to go on with the, frankly, the catastrophic path the world has been on since 1961. So how did you respond to that? <laughs> well, I got my opposite number Actually, the former drugs minister, Bob Ainsworth, on the, was, a, was on the Labour benches. I got him to table questions to me to try and get information out of my own department. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Um, to, to try and elucidate the actual cost of the strategy. I mean, there is a cost now in the latest iteration of the drug strategy, about sort of £13.7 billion, pounds, I think, is, uh, is what is put to it. But if you consider the whole expense of the whole uh, criminal justice system, it's significantly lower than that. You can see that we... I possibly haven't got this completely right. So you're sort of forced to start uh, thinking differently to many of, I guess, most... Not, it's not just Conservative MPs. I mean, I think quite a lot of the Labour MPs also had a, a relatively sort of traditional view about drugs and drug policy. Yeah. I didn't find Labour more receptive than Tories and so There is a sort of Blairite, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, of being pretty hardline on the difficult estates and not really getting underneath the causes and understanding the issues properly, but being, being seen just to be really robust on policing and sentencing and, the, if you like, the, the negative enforcement uh, end. Um, you can do that for a bit, but eventually you run out of prisons and you run out of money. And do you think it's all about politics or do you think there's, there's some genuine ignorance about other policies and examples in other countries which work? I mean, or... 
It's very interesting. There are two books I've enjoyed reading the most since taking a, a very serious interest in this and making it one of the main pieces of my parliamentary work is uh, Good Cop, Bad War by Neil Woods and J.S. Raffelli and Drug Wars by the same authors. And Good Cop, Bad War is this great ripping yarn about 14 years of Neil Woods as a frontline drug squad officer where he comes to the conclusion that the better the police do, the worse they make the problem. And the more people police successfully arrest, the more ruthless the drugs gangs become in order to protect themselves, the more of their low-level suppliers they'll murder in order to stop the gangs being infiltrated. And if the police are successful uh, by taking down a drugs gang, they just create a vacancy and the competition moves in and you then get violence as the gangs battle it out for control of the supply chain. He's therefore set up, became the first British chair of law enforcement against prohibition. But his the rather more academic work sitting alongside the ripping yarn is drug wars, which gives an account as to how drug policy has been influenced, particularly in the hands of media and politicians, particularly in the 1960s. And you can see the antecedents of our the policy there. And the more one reads about it and understands the shocking basis on which the drugs policy towards cannabis, for, for example, exists, is because of racist policing in 1950s America, where cannabis is scheduled and put in a category uh, where it is utterly beyond the pale, simply because of the people who use it. Had absolutely nothing to do with the danger that cannabis did or didn't pose. It was simply it was smoked by black Americans. Yeah, I, I guess some of these protests of, over the last few weeks are sort of part of that legacy, aren't they? That's, uh... They are absolutely part of that legacy. And you only have to look at the life story of George Floyd. That is a, it's almost a classic tale of someone who has drifted into drugs and the criminal business associated with drugs that we have decided to make illegal. And that's how his life has played out. Uh, but that tragedy, it's a millionfold. I mean, we're just very lucky um, with our gun laws in the UK, um, where, where the drugs gangs here probably have access to guns because they've got the money, but they know they'll uh, draw huge attention to themselves if they start using them. And so uh, the people who are enforcing their market share in the UK use knives. That's why we have this terrible scourge of knife crime. But it's all interlinked with the economics of this business that we have decided to hand over to, to criminals. And just just go back to your time as prison minister. Did you ever have any dialogue with the, your American equivalents? I went to the States, actually, um, for, a, for two or three weeks, I think, in August 2011, to go and look at the American prison system. What I was really interested in was uh, work in prisons was one of the reasons I went there, and also to uh, talk to them about rehabilitation of offenders and using payment by results to try and engage the charitable and the private sector uh, with the public sector and having an interest in making sure that the product out of the criminal justice system and out of the prison system, that everybody had an interest in that person uh, going straight and starting to pay taxes, not being a burden on society by getting uh, back into back into jail. But the gang culture in American prisons was, well, impressive, I suppose, is one word used to describe it. But the by the time people had acquired their gang identity, which you could physically see on them in terms of the tattoos they uh, would have on their bodies, you could see where people were thought they were getting their security from, uh, thought they were going to get their economic rewards from, uh, uh, loyalty to those gangs. And we had handed them a very, very lucrative business because we decided to put it outside the law and transforms arguments that I find terribly powerful. But saying there are two free markets here. There's one way you could go and buy whatever the hell you like at Tesco with, with no controls around it. And the second one is this highly efficient criminal supply chain we've got where you can uh, order drugs quicker and you can get a pizza. 
there is a middle way uh, where you put the criminals out of business and you license and you regulate uh, people's access to drugs. And as long as you keep the criminals out of business, uh, then the state can get a decent level of control over who gets drugs, what age they are. And it's how we manage alcohol and it's how we manage tobacco. And we've had a, an increasing success on uh, tobacco, for example, which is a pretty noxious way of ingesting as I understand it, the most addictive substance there is, nicotine, which doesn't do you very much harm, but, but smoking it certainly does. Mm, great. So you, you were joined or maybe helped set up the Conservative Drug Party Policy Reform Group. I mean, tell us about that and how wide is it served? It was my intention to try and pursue the campaign through the all-party parliamentary group. Yep. And why things were changing, obviously, is the development of the cannabis industry, both for medicine and the decisions of Canada and 12 American states and the District of Columbia and Uruguay to have an adult-use recreational market, which means there was an explosion of investor interest on the other side of the Atlantic in this business. And that changed the dynamic. So billions of dollars being invested in this industry. And that really put the opportunity to put the public affairs, the political campaign here on a much more professional basis. Now, I actually pitched that to the all-party parliamentary group, said what we actually need to do is we need to secure support from those people who have a commercial interest in us making this industry legal, in people getting access to medicine from cannabis, but also the potential of a legalized, regulated, licensed adult use uh, market. And if they think there's going to be potential progress in the UK, to some extent, they will invest in it because there is going to be billions of pounds uh, to be made eventually. And they may give us the resources to employ some researchers and some PR people and everything else in order to help make the case. Uh, well, I tell you, I was the first Conservative um, uh, to co-chair this group. And I confess that I didn't carry the day with my colleagues on the all-party parliamentary group. They didn't want to be associated in that sense with a commercial interest. They thought it would then impugn their motives. Uh, trying to explain that these people were all lined up with the same objectives as us didn't carry the day. So... That then led me to set up the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group Limited. And the biggest challenge to changing minds in the UK is, is principally on the centre-right. It's not a Conservative Party group. The object of its attentions are opinions on the centre-right. So it's been set up as a, as a company. We've got to be completely transparent. I can't take any resources from it. Although I chair it, I don't own any of it. I don't get any income from it. And I can't take any income from this issue if I want to speak about it in Parliament and speak to my colleagues and, uh, course, and, and the rest. But we've been able to get enough support there to have uh, four very clever uh, researchers working away for me and for anyone who wants to take the product of their work. And they've just done a brilliant report on reviewing uh, how we got on with the medicinal cannabis market in the UK uh, since we changed the regulations in uh, November 2018. And we're going to do a further report on having basically said, obviously, not much has changed. If you've got lots of money, you can go and get a doctor to prescribe yourself uh, medicine from cannabis privately, but you've got almost no chance of getting a prescription on Absolutely. the NHS. And we've still got 100,000 people growing their own medicine, um, uh, which is really quite a serious criminal offence uh, with uh, quite a long prison sentence uh, if people are convicted of it. But how can you, if you've got MS and you found a way of relieving your symptoms by uh, growing your medicine, the law is in a, is in a pretty difficult place. Um, they're not criminals. 
um, uh, that so. people yeah. trying to do their best for them, themselves and relieve their symptoms. We need to do a service for them. It's interesting that so you, you know, in, in a sense, you know, your group and drug science, we've we achieved what we thought was quite a major goal in getting cannabis rescheduled, and we yes. thought then, you know, that like in other countries, people would embrace it and doctors would start prescribing it, and you know, there would be you know kind of rational and sensible use. But it's just not happened, and I just wonder whether you've. How much influence does your group have, for instance, with the Department of Health? Because it would seem not, not to be helping very much here. Well, we're absolutely committed to evidence-based drug policy. So, which is why it's so important that we uh, need to have the resources to produce uh, really good quality work um, that can then be played out into the, uh, if you like, the political arena at the, if you like, at, at the top level. Meanwhile, obviously, there are all the uh, experts such as yourself then uh, dealing with government officials. And David, your uh, your history is um, an exemplar of what happens when uh, the politics <laughs> isn't quite right, uh, yes, and the, and the messaging doesn't suit the uh, what the government of the day is is trying to do, which is then not based on evidence. It's based on the view that uh, various newspapers or uh, media will take. And we've got to win those arguments, and we can only win those arguments if we could produce properly evidenced arguments. We've got to acknowledge the, the risks involved, but um, on the other side, the massive, massive benefits that can come from a structural change of policy are just off the scale. And it's my job to open my colleagues' eyes to the opportunity uh, that sits there. And you know, it's my view that if uh, uh, I can engage uh, the Home Secretary in this cause, um, she's got the reputation, the toughness actually to, to deliver a great reform. She could be a great Home Secretary. Um, and it probably needs someone with uh, sort of unflinching uh, outlook on life to deliver this. If she, but she's going to have to be convinced on the evidence. And there is uh, there's a huge amount of risk aversion around this subject. Um, people don't understand the evidence. People are frightened uh, of the implications. And we've got to take the fear out by putting the knowledge and the evidence in. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a drug science community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. I mean, when you talk amongst your you know, your colleagues in Westminster, do you, you feel that there is some improvement in knowledge? I mean, are they, or are they still terrified that it's a gateway drug and it's going to cause schizophrenia? These are the sort of things that they're still finding hard to accept. Well, I suppose that people now know where I'm coming from. <laughs> so, um, I'm yeah. uh, not quite a single issue fanatic, but there is a surprising amount of uh, open minds on this issue, actually. And where we thought there were going to be terrible problems getting uh, medicinal cannabis formally across the line, you could really couldn't find an MP who would decide if you couldn't have medicine from the opium poppy. Why on earth can't you have medicine well, exactly, from the cannabis plant? Exactly. Uh, it's... So there was, in the end, no political objection to that change. And actually, most of my colleagues think it's done, and they're wondering why no one can get access to it. Obviously, we've now got to bring them uh, sharply into face with the reality that not much has changed, and that we're finally playing sensible catch-up with the science. We've given ourselves a 50-year handicap in terms of research, 
because of the scheduling of cannabis. And there is an enormous amount of public good that can be done once we get the, the science and the research properly in place and actually uh, understand the full potential of medicines from cannabis, all the things that they uh, might be able to do. And the investors got it. That's why there was a ton of money went early into this business. Of course, there's inevitably been the correction. Uh, but in the end, all the evidence is there is a huge amount of public good that can be done by fully accessing um, the benefits that can come from uh, medicine from cannabis, um, as well as wellness. We're in early days of establishing the rules about what you can claim and making sure that the, the wellness market itself is properly uh, regulated and people know what they're buying and they're getting proper value for money. And it is a, an area that, that needs a decent, sensible government regulation um, to protect consumers, but also to enable people to access the benefits. Yeah, I mean, but it does seem that the Department of Health has sort of as grudgingly made it available. They, I mean, certainly by making it a special and putting it into a, a special kind of prescription, you know, they've, made, they've made it really hard for people. But politicians like hiding behind experts, and the experts in this case will be doctors, and they'll go, I'll do what the doctor says. And of course, we know the medical profession um, haven't been taught about the endocannabinoid system. It doesn't appear in their uh, pharmaceutical guidebooks. Uh, so we are dealing with a profession that some of whom still think it's some branch of homeopathy. Yeah, that's interesting. I've often wondered whether they, they're actually still scared of it because of the purported risks of driving and schizophrenia. And that. But, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's just that it was good enough. Well, again, we've to... got to deploy the evidence. And we've got to go to America and you, um, because the supply chain of cannabis is different in America, it's not so associated with uh, the harder drugs that it is here um, because it's, it's grown by a different sort of more of a, a cash crop for local people. You don't get enhanced, very strong skunk is this isn't the standard fare in the United States. And so you start talking about psychosis in the young in the United States, and they look at you blankly. They don't know yep. what you're talking yeah. about. Exactly. Uh, but here, what the criminal supply chain produces here is stuff that's very strong and, and quite dangerous for developing young minds. And if we could, the state could get a grip on it and license it and regulate it and treat it in much the same way as we do alcohol, um, we could protect our, our young people. And it's, it's the basis on which the Canadians made the case for change, which was protect children and reduce crime. Well, of course, it's also the basis of the uh, the Dutch approach. You know, the, the coffee shops were a way of separating the cannabis market from, from the hard drug market, and very successful one. If you don't do reform properly, you end up with all the contradictions uh, that surround drug policy in this space. The supply into those coffee shops is illegal. They're given, they're given a license in the same way as we allow people to conduct drugs tests in music festivals, but where the police allow, in effect, a, a tolerance uh, so people can actually test the stuff that they're bringing to music festivals. Well, yeah, except we don't... It's still very challenging to do drug testing at festivals. It's, it's not approved. It has to be... You know, people have to... But one of our members of our advisory panel is uh, the great Mike Barton, the recently retired Chief Constable of Durham, who's one of the police thought leaders on uh, operational policy towards, towards drugs. And it's the police... Um, both the Federation and the chief officers, by and large now, are voices for reform. It's not just Neil Wood speaking in the, uh, in the wilderness on the back of his experience as a drugs officer. Essentially, the police establishment is saying we can't go on as we are. No, and do you think police commissioners have uh, been a good thing in that regard, in that they've brought in another dimension of interest or argument? Um, police commissioners that get it, yes. And so there was a, obviously a great partnership in Durham and, and obviously very sad to see the police commissioner there die recently and, and not being able... None <laughs> of my causes was um, doctor-assisted dying, if you... Um, but, that's, uh, uh, but they were a great team. 
uh, and which is why Durham led the way. But you need police and crime commissioners then who understand the issue. And it's if you're not necessarily coming from a background where you've been familiar with the illegal drugs business and the whole history, most politicians' default start position is drugs are bad, they are banned. I'm going to sit on my moral high mountain. That position is irreproachable. No one can criticise me um, uh, for saying uh, drugs are bad, they are banned, unless we can bring them face to face with the catastrophic consequences of that policy and practice. Yes, the media also has quite a large influence. I mean, you yourself have been probably even more than me <laughs> subject to vilification in the media. How do, how do we try to get a sensible debate in the newspapers about, about drugs? Because I found it very difficult. Um, it, it is very difficult. And obviously the position of some of the tabloids is, is crucial. And I don't think there's anything we can do apart from continue battering away with them. There, many of their journalists who understand the issue are on side and are very sympathetic to the case for reform. And we just got to keep working away at their sense of public spiritedness about um, doing public good, actually about making our country a better place. And it's not made a better place by policies we've pursued for half a century that have produced the situation we've got now. And more of the same won't work. It might be an idea to think again. And of course, your group is not just about um, making cannabis available, but it's also you're moving, looking at other drugs like psychedelics, aren't you? Yes, I, I kind of split the work of the group and mirroring the work of the all-party parliamentary group. Uh, when I became co-chair of that, Molly Meacher, who was in the House of Lords, had, who's been engaged with this much longer, much longer than I, said we just got to focus on medicine from cannabis because that's the only immediate uh, progress we, we might be able to make. And I'm uh, thrilled to say within six months, I think, of the new officers of the APPG getting stuck into it. Billy Caldwell and Alfie Dingley uh, and the campaigns associated with them helped us get medicinal medicine from cannabis formally over the line in the UK. But that was a big achievement. So medicine from cannabis is one uh, area of work. Considering the evidence that's now pouring out of um, the 12 states in America who've got a legal uh, adult use recreational market, Canada, Uruguay, New Zealand may go down this route. Uh, these people are doing us a huge service by doing the case study on uh, what happens if you uh, legalise your adult use cannabis market. Are you able to protect children? Are you able to reduce crime? Are you able to bring people in from the criminal supply chain so they've got regular jobs with proper wages, proper conditions of work? And people are getting a product that they know what it is and they know what strength it is and they can get the public health information about, about how to use it and then be held responsible if they are irresponsible towards others in their use of legal recreational cannabis. And parallel with alcohol is very precise. And alcohol is a you know, great industry in many ways, gives uh, people a huge amount of pleasure, but at the margins, perhaps 10% of alcohol users get into trouble with it. And this needs to be a public health issue uh, to give them the signpost to get them out of trouble or the services to get them uh, out of trouble if they have got themselves in, a, in an addictive mess with alcohol. But that's an infinitely better way than total prohibition, as we saw in the United States in the 1920s. It always fascinates me when you know, people, people talk about prohibition as, as, as the way to deal with drugs. And then you say, well, what about alcohol in the States? And they say, oh, no, that didn't work, did it? And you think, oh, so explain to me the difference. I mean, and alcohol's quite a dangerous drug. Indeed it is. And tobacco is obviously a horror show. And we finally, it's taken a long time, but we've finally begun to win the war in terms of uh, reducing smoke tobacco consumption, which is, creates uh, so much ill health uh, on, it, on its back. And that lethal confection of nicotine um, being highly addictive and then combusting it in your lungs, which strikes me as utterly bonkers. 
I saw the public health education films when I was 13 uh, at school, which showed me the blackened lungs of a Cumbrian sheep farmer um, uh-huh. uh, who smoked. You remembered um, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, that, and that sat with me. I thought, what earth? And I came from a family of smokers. So that convinced me and the, the tax levels and everything else have uh, convinced me further. But you can do this. Um, you can win this battle on uh, the merits of drugs. Yeah, tobacco is an ex- example of where Britain's actually led the world. We've taxed tobacco, we've stopped advertising tobacco, and we've now pioneered the use of much less harmful alternatives like vaping. And uh, we can take pride in that. Uh, obviously, there are tobacco producers where the stuff goes out the back door and, and there's mm. a, uh, a black market because of the see how the incentives involved but by and large we're bearing down on the consumption of that because we're able to get a public um, health message across to people and we've got the resources to do it because we've got the tax revenue from it going back to psilocybin and uh, which is i know your group has been very active in researching the evidence base uh, and also the sort of political opportunities so we just produced a paper on it again it fell into that category of drugs in the 1960s uh, which were thought just to be wacky beyond the pale and uh, a sort of political judgment, not on any evidence base, a political judgment was made that this, these things are never going to be of any use at all. So they were shoved into Schedule 1, uh, which therefore made doing research in this area uh, very difficult with the actual the practical controls on the uh, on the drugs themselves, very onerous, um, reputationally very difficult for research trusts and other bodies to get engaged with supporting this kind of work. But now we're faced with the prospect of I think a third of our veterans who suffered post-traumatic stress, uh, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, are beyond help uh, with their trauma by conventional psychiatric medicine. And uh, the prospects of uh, psilocybin or uh, LSD or MDMA in these areas of effecting effectively some kind of surgical intervention to reset the mind looks very, very interesting. And the emerging evidence would certainly suggest that we need to get on with the research here fast. If these medicines open up the prospect of uh, attacking depression in a serious way, that is a huge, huge win, potentially. We need to get on and we need to get the science done. Do you find that you're, having been a soldier, the people in the Ministry of Defence are, are interested in your opinions? Well, again, my opinions are only worth the evidential weight they carry. And so I will be you know, very careful that one doesn't overclaim that decent research being put into the political and parliamentary domain and that people can trust what we're saying. That's why you know, the opportunity is there to do a huge amount of public good. Uh, since I got into this business, as uh, since actually I I lost re-election to be chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2017. Parliament elected in 2017 uh, did not look too kindly on Brexit, which is why we had such a bloodstained business until the 2019 election. But that gave me the opportunity. Then I was surprised by losing a chairmanship. Uh, well, what do I do now? And on the same day as I lost that election, the government published uh, its the latest iteration of its drug strategy. And I thought, now I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> because this issue is, is hugely important and it needs a conservative voice to be engaged in it. And actually, you can win this argument. And you know, I enjoy making these after-dinner speech to conservative supporters, all sitting there with a glass of wine in front of them. And you point out that they're consuming a drug and you take it from there. Yes. I mean, of course, you've been extremely personally very brave in taking on aspects of government policy, specifically around the Psychoactive Substances Act, mm. where you you argued successfully, and well, very few people have ever done that to change <laughs> drug policy. That, uh, that I, mean, I, I wish I could claim it was a great plan. All right. So, look, would you want to, can you share a bit more of that? Well, I was privy as a minister 
to the early discussions in 2012 about what we were going to do around spices, whereas derivatives, the cannabinoids that were constantly being reinvented. And so you were trying to use the existing mechanism to ban them, and you needed a new statutory instrument for every single new chemical formulation that came along. And so what officials and ministers were trying to do was then, for in that sense, get a much broader definition. Unfortunately, that broader definition then said to be swept into things like coffee by some definitions, and it certainly swept poppers into it. I do remember having a conversation with one of my colleagues who was leading the work on this in the early part of the 2015 uh, government. And I said, you're going to have a problem over poppers. And you know, I was told that my lot wouldn't like it. And so I shut up and went away. Uh, but there was really good work done by like Mike Freer, uh, who was a government whip, but working quietly away on the inside, making sure that obviously the Home Affairs Select Committee came out with their report. And then in an unreflective moment, I got up and made a speech. I thought I can stand by and just watch this happen. And uh, outed myself as a poppers user. I hadn't anticipated it hitting the front page of the sun the following day, but it had its effect. Well, quite, and you've certainly gained an awful lot of respect for your courage. And hopefully, even within your own party, people will, some of them will have been surprised or even hateful, but I guess the others would have respected well, actually, you. Well, no, to be fair, amusement, I think, rather than, uh, rather than hate, I don't think. Uh, and actually, that's been a really welcome part of my own personal journey. I mean, I came out in 2010, so I came from a very conventional background. And there are, uh, in a way, there are issues to some degree mirror each other. If you're in a society that doesn't understand and you grow up in a very socialised place where being gay is criminal, as it was in the, in the army, and it was a criminal when in the army I joined, um, impossible to be an uh, out gay conservative member of parliament. If you want a career in the army, then in politics, uh, and you've been socialised in that way, what I understood deep inside me, there was something wrong with me. And I had to master it. It was only when I got to Parliament that that construct around me began to fall apart. And then 10 or so years later, I was able to face up to the reality of who I was and actually have the joy of finally being myself. And there is an element of which moving debate in society and the huge, fantastic changes that have been made in around sexuality and understanding of it in the UK, massive, massive societal change, which has moved with some speed. Um, We can do that around drugs policy. Dealing with drugs through the criminal justice system and not through the public health system, and it's as simple as that, is close to madness in terms of the outcomes. We can serve the public infinitely better if we treat this as a health issue. We can control it better and we can uh, end the massive amount of crime that's associated with it, all the violence, and all the communities are then driven uh, into this business because they sit at the margins of society. And in the UK, we hang £15 billion in front of them and we wonder what happens. It's interesting, isn't it? You can use the change in you know the laws on homosexuality as a to show how we can do things right, but that I guess that was driven by strong sort of moral imperative. Whereas the drug laws seem to be, I don't know, I, I, it seems harder to get to people. Don't but answer there is a there is a a moral imperative. You can see it in the temperance movements of the late nineteenth uh, century, where you know, if you look, look at the United States. Towns, particularly out in the West, would have been decimated by alcohol um, abuse. So anyway, and look, look back in our own history. But the question you want to ask is, how do you best control that? And putting the business entirely outside uh, the legal sphere, handing it to a uh, criminal supply chain, which is going to earn a great deal of money and become very efficient in the process, and it just means you get more of it and the state loses control of it. And so I can understand the morality around the temperance. I don't like it because it's authoritarian and it's stopping people uh, exercising freedom of choice and making responsible decisions that 
need to reflect the interests of others as well as the pleasures that, that they would get from alcohol or any other drug. If you have a mature discussion about what effect it is you're seeking uh, to make yourself feel better, humanity's actually been doing that for thousands of years and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So what's the way forward? We've got a few minutes left, Crispin. Is the argument going to be the economic argument? that If we had a sensible policy, we would everyone would be better off in terms of finances and also there'd be more justice, better justice. Uh, we just got to keep... Uh, battering away to try and get to a place where the evidence is assessed, that we don't assess it through a a moral or a quasi-religious view about what is right, because uh, everybody's morals are different. Everybody's religions will tend to be different as to what they as to, as to what they believe. People have got to exercise their duty to the rest of society and to others. But within that, you ought to be free to live your life as you as you wish to do it. The, decisions you take about yourself are part of your the personal autonomy associated with a uh, with a free society and the state has long ago lost the argument with very very large part of the population uh, i remember doing a debate with mike barton uh, we were on the same side of drugs reform data the durham union society 300 freshers are taking part in the debate the chief constable of durham asked them how many of them have done an illegal drug 80% of them put their hand up. I'm confessed to a crime in front of the chief constable. Well, that's the respect for our law. It's non-existent. So you've got laws that are to a significant degree the police don't uh, want to enforce around possession. A minor drug conviction can do serious damage to someone's future. And there's a better way. And we've just got to get the evidence out there and sinking into people's mind that alcohol is a drug and we manage prohibition as a lesson in how not to do it in the United States. Yet we've managed to prohibit everything else. And look what's happened. You know, the British army is run out of Helmand province um, because, it, because it took on the poppy farmers. And we couldn't find a way of letting them grow poppy for the medical market, which is half of uh, opium poppies are grown for. And you could get on a train, uh, go past Didcot, and you could see poppy fields in England growing, uh, growing poppy for the medical market here. And yet um, we wouldn't let Afghan farmers uh, access that. And in the end, they turned back to the Taliban and we were run out of Helmand. It's as tragic as that. Well, Crispin, it's been a delight talking with you. I wish you well in your endeavours. We've got a way to go, but it's great to have someone like you on the inside who can at least uh, bend the ear of people who may not want to listen. And uh, let's hope in the next election, drugs will come, become something that is discussed, perhaps in, in terms of some of the party uh, plans. Yeah. I hope this parliament actually is going to see more progress than you uh, might otherwise happen. There are uh, reformers at all levels. And the last Conservative leadership election gave a demonstration uh, in kind that the drugs question is a very difficult question yes. for politicians. Um, and the truth is, if there's a question that you can't answer um, or all the leadership candidates couldn't answer, well, uh, it might just be the case that the laws are not in quite the right place. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you get back to your work. There will be another bell soon, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> there, there, and there will. I've, today's entertainment is going to be counter-terrorism and sentencing. <laughs> well, thanks again. So it's been a great pleasure talking with you, Crispin, and do stay in touch. Today will thank do. You. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. It was uh, very interesting to have a politician being so clear and outspoken about policies relating to drugs. And it's reassuring to know that there's someone in Westminster who's really campaigning hard to get things changed and uh, the success of the uh, making cannabis a medicine has uh, obviously been useful 
but there's a long way to go. And I think with Crispin there, there's a chance we might move things forward more quickly than if he wasn't. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. If you did, then please consider becoming a community member for Drug Science and sign up to that on our website. Our members are really critical to us maintaining this kind of quality output. And of course, there are other benefits, such as you can come to Drug Science meetings as well. So thank you. Follow me on Twitter, follow Drug Science on Twitter, and listen to the next podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.